We are in the Gospel of Matthew. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. We're in the last paragraph of that chapter this morning. The Lord has been trying to show His disciples that there is a requirement that their righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees of his day. So Jesus is trying to make that point. And the way he's making it is he's going back and comparing the teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees concerning the Old Testament law. And he's comparing that, of course, in teaching a, a much deeper, richer, and higher, and more eternal view of the law of God and how the law of God is to be fulfilled in their lives, at which point their righteousness will exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees by God's grace and by His Spirit and by His regenerating and sanctifying work in their lives. And this is about five or six examples He's given us, and this is the final one here. So I'm reading from verse 43. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love these who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. The teaching that the scribes and the Pharisees had given to the people for several hundred of years was that they were to literally hate their enemies, but they were to love their neighbor. And they had pretty well come to describe that as neighbors being those that were of the house of Israel. Those were specifically of the little nation of Judea. And that was their neighbor. That was their neighborhood. And those neighbors were the ones that they were to love according to the commandment. Those that they were completely to despise were all the others. Everyone out there that was a member of what they would call a Gentile nation or the heathen nations or just simply the nations round about. Now you can think about it for just a moment and you can not be too surprised that the poor Israelites had kind of learned over the generation to hate their neighbors. Let me just sketch it for you. First of all, the Egyptians had enslaved them by the hand of Pharaoh. Then the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites, that's all those nations that were to their south and east and between them and the desert, had harassed them for generations before they ever entered the Promised Land. The Canaanites and the Philistines pillaged them over and over and over while they were in the land of Canaan, back in the days, you know, of, of Samson, in the days of David and, and Saul and so forth. The Assyrians, under Ashurbanipal, had dispersed them. 
The Babylonians had captured them under Nebuchadnezzar and taken them into a 70-year captivity and destroyed their temple and the city of Jerusalem. The Greeks under Alexander the Great had conquered them and had forced them to learn the language of the Greek and had forced them to take on Hellenistic philosophies and ways and even worship idolatry that they hated so much. And what made it worse is the Syrians continued in that vein under Antiochus Epiphanes and he desecrated their temple. And then finally the Romans had moved in and completely oppressed them under the Caesars, Julius Caesar first and during the days of Jesus' birth, Augustus Caesar. Would you hate your enemies if they'd been doing that to your people for 1,500 years? You would learn to despise them. And there was also division and hatred even within Israel. There was party against party. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. There were the Essenes and the Zealots. All of these had a different worldview and a different idea of what it meant to be an Israelite and what the hope of Israel was and the expectation of the coming of a Christ or a Messiah. And they differed among themselves. There were regional differences. You're familiar with these when you read your New Testament between Judea, the kingdom in the south, and then the Gentiles in the far north where Jesus was, was, had lived his, his first 30 years and had, had his early ministry. And in between the two, there was Samaria, a people that were sort of Israelite and sort of Assyrian and sort of a whole lot of other things. So there was ethnic and racial enmity everywhere you look. And even, Jesus describes it here, even among the people that were listening to him, there was this division, this division of hatred, and it was between the, the people of Judea and the people that lived in Judea, and yet they were despised. People like, and they're mentioned, the publicans. They hated the publicans. I said publican, not republican. <laughs> because the publicans were traitors, and they were of the baser sort, and they were the tax collectors. They were in league with Rome to continue the oppressive taxation and dominance upon the people. And so there were plenty of people to hate in Jesus' day. And if you'll think about the history involved in each of these things, there's good reason to hate. We, we hate people and things and nations and nationalities and worldviews and a lot of that stuff. And we think we have good reason to hate them sometimes. Hatred is just part of the human soul. It's part of our sinfulness, our depravity, our fallenness. And we're not going to analyze hatred, but there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of ignorance. And there's a lot of prejudice and bias. There's a lot of, of things that build up over a lifetime, build up over multiple lifetimes, over generations, and even over centuries. And so this is what the commandment that God had given them way back in the Old Testament. You knew I was going to go to the Old Testament, didn't you? We're going to Leviticus. Here's the passage. It's just actually one half of one verse. It's found in the book of Leviticus, written by Moses, about 1,500 years probably or so before Christ. 
And it's part of the holiness code. This was what was given to God's people to go by. And one little verse, the end of that verse says, verse 18, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. That was a commandment. It wasn't one of the Ten Commandments. To love the Lord was one of the Ten Commandments right at the very first. But to love the neighbor as thyself was what the Lord had commanded His people to do. And let me just sketch through the few verses that go before it. By the way, most of the Mosaic Code is an amplification of that particular commandment. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But up till now, the definition of neighbor to the Jews has been the Jewish people. That's who are in the neighborhood. But the Lord is beginning to show that the neighborhood's going to broaden. Even in our text this morning, it talks about how God has a common grace over all. That is, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on sinners and saints. God has a goodness over all in his providential goodness and his common grace. But beyond that, there's a saving grace. And the saving grace that's found in God's gift of Jesus Christ to the world is going to one day within less than 100 years after the crucifixion and death of Christ... It's going to cover all these lands. You wouldn't believe how many churches were founded in Philistia and in Assyria and in Babylon and, my, and in Egypt. My goodness, don't we know the story of even the, the European spread of the gospel, the whole eastern half, the Greek churches, and the whole western half, the Latin churches. And before we reach the end of the first century, the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone to all of these nasty neighbors, all of these conquering people, because God knows how to get rid of enemies. That's right. You're thinking of one way, I know. Let me suggest another way. The way God gets rid of his enemies is he makes them his friends. He draws them to himself through Jesus Christ. But as he was teaching in the Old Testament, I'm going to read a few verses in the Old Testament, a few verses in the New Testament, and then we're done. This is found in the book of Leviticus, and this is what some of the things that are outlined uh, in this book concerning how you go about loving your neighbor. And I'll read it and brief, briefly comment as we go. All the way back to verse 9. This is God speaking now to the ancient Israelites. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, neither shall you gather after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyards bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes in your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, for I am the Lord your God. Here's a way to love your enemies. Provide for them. God set up a system that the poor and the stranger, that is the foreigner, the enemy, could be taken care of in ancient Israel. And it was, you know, the, the teaching of the gleaning. The gleaning meant that they would go through and harvest, but they wouldn't just strip everything out of the grapes in the vineyard or the, or the grain in the field. They would leave. In fact, they would round the corners so that the corners were full-grown stalks. And all of these foreigners could come, and these poor people in the land, and these disenfranchised, and these people that didn't have a good status would have a place to gather some food for their subsistence. 
Well, this worked out beautifully in one case in the Old Testament. You remember Ruth, who was from Moab, that awful tribe that vexed Israel even in the wilderness before they got into the land of Canaan. Moab, a Moabitess, a young Moab widow. Ruth was gleaning in the field as a foreigner and as a stranger and as an alien, as, as an enemy of Israel. When she was brought into the fold and she had given herself to her God, the God she called to herself and called upon and depended upon was the God of her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi. And she says, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Do not entreat me to leave thee, nor to cease from following thee. You hear that read at weddings a lot, don't you? Those words were actually spoken from a, a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. There's sometime a little enmity there, isn't there? Oh, like Pete said last week, I think I might be meddling at this point. But God draws the Moabites into it. And, and this young woman became one of the ancestors of Christ. The very lineage of Christ involved people that were part of these Rahab, a harlot, a Canaanite, became one of the women in the ancestral line, the, on the human side of the coming of Christ. So God works with these people, and this is the way he wanted it to be done in, uh, in ancient Israel. Let's continue on. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. This has to do with honesty. How do you treat your enemies? Like you treat your neighbor. How do you treat your neighbor? You're honest with your neighbor. You don't lie to them. You don't steal from them. You don't defraud them in any way. Moving along to verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely, nor so profane the name of your God, for I am the Lord. We've already dealt with this in a sermon just a, a week or two ago. Perjury at law and profanity in the culture are forbidden by the Lord. How do you treat your neighbor? How do you treat your enemy? You swear honestly. You deal with them honestly and forthrightly. And you do not perjure yourself. Neither do you slander them in any way. And then on down to verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor to rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Here we have the admonition to treat your employees. So it has to do with economic and financial uh, behavior on your part with respect to others. We must hurry on. Let's just go continue through to the next verse. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. What's called for here in treatment of our neighbor and, as Jesus expands it, our enemy is to take care of and have special regard for the disabled, those that have uh, various disabilities and are unable in many ways to do things that we do. We are to have a special place of care for them. Continuing on down to verse uh, 15, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer, defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your 
neighbor. In this instance, this is talking about law court justice. You are not to have any injustice done in the court. In fact, what you're doing here is you're establishing a judgment of righteous judgments. And there's two places you can go wrong in the courtroom, the judge especially. He can have special regard for the rich or he can have special regard for the poor. Either way, it's a miscarriage of justice. If you favor the rich in the court of law and in your just dealings in a society, you are mistreating your neighbor. If you give them special preferences, same is true of the poor. If you have some kind of special treatment toward the poor that is beyond equity, that's beyond fairness. For example, if you set up a taxation system that takes from those that have and gives to those that have not with a sheer grant, that is a miscarriage of justice. That's not righteous judgment. And so those things need to be guarded in the culture, in the society, in the legal system that you set up in order to equally and fairly protect all. And let's just continue on. We're short on time here. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. And you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. That means putting slander is obviously what it talks about. We're not to slander one another, speak falsely. Even, we're not even to speak the truth if it deliberately hurts them. That's what the real understanding of slander is. It's, it's the intent of the heart to harm. And so we're not to slander our neighbor. And as Jesus now tells us, we're not to even do that to our enemy. That does away with a lot of political advertising, doesn't it? <laughs> and that is what the Lord calls us to do. And as believers, that's our standard of righteousness. By the way, you remember the Apostle Paul says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. And that's what this is. And a large portion of the Old Testament is just that, instruction in righteousness. And we ignore how we're to live when we don't pay attention to how God told his people in the old covenant to live because he, he spells it out and then the new covenant teachings gives it even an expansion. This says, you shall not stand up against the life. That is, you shall not put your neighbor in harm's way. You shall not do anything that jeopardizes the health and safety of your neighbor. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Now, how in the world can you escape that? This is Moses, 1,500 years before Jesus, saying this. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall not reason, you, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur a sin because of him. In other words, we've got to be open. We have to be forthright, authentic, honest, and completely transparent in our dealings with one another. If there's any guile, if there's any surreptition, if we have any kind of mixed motive, if we have any kind of two-faced uh, dealings, we're outside the covenant commands of our God. And so he expects us to live like that. And so then he wraps it up there. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. This is the, the, the admonition that was given so far. And then our text, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You remember there's some kind of question at one time in Jesus' ministry. Somebody asked him, well, who exactly is my neighbor? 
Remember how Jesus answered that question? He told the story of the Good Samaritan. And then he asked, who is the neighbor? And of course, it was the one that had mercy and compassion upon the man who had been wounded and beaten and left half dead. And so these things begin to clear up. And then finally, as we conclude, I want to read a a good chunk of Scripture from the Apostle Paul, the book of Romans, and see if you hear in this text any of the echoes from Leviticus. If you understand in this text any of the perspective and the view given to us by Christ there in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen as I read from Romans chapter 12, verse 9 and following. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, nor associate with, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. And by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. And in summation, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.